is a very unique passage in all of the Bible because it tells us the very precise time when the Messiah would come. And so since we're reflecting on his coming into our world, we oftentimes speak of his coming as his birth, for indeed he was born into our world. But it is not so much the mechanism by which he comes into the world, but it's the fact that he comes into our world and that he comes at a very specific moment in history. It's a specific moment because it's the moment God had determined. And he had determined that moment in one sense before eternity passed. But in another sense, with regard to Daniel's writing some 600 years before the time of the event of Messiah's arrival in Bethlehem some 2,000 years ago. So I thought this would be a great passage to think about as we anticipate celebrating his coming. So take a look with me in verse 20. Daniel writes, while I was speaking and praying. Well, as I said before, verses 1 through 19 record the prayer that Daniel had prayed. And we're told when he prayed this prayer. If you look at chapter 9, it's in the first year of Darius, the son of Xerxes, the Mede, by descent. We know when that was. We're at 538 years before the time of the coming of Messiah. What's interesting is that as the moment approaches in 538, when Darius the Mede is reigning over Babylon at that moment, Daniel is studying the word of God. If you look at the opening passages of Daniel chapter 9, we'll think more about this next week, but here's the prophet of God. He's about 80 years old. He has served faithfully in the courts of Babylon. He has remained faithful to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he has been so faithful to God, not only in service and prayer, but also in study of God's word. He's reading the book of Jeremiah, a contemporary of Daniel, but a little bit earlier than Daniel, but a contemporary of his, but he's passed the scene some 40 years before. Daniel doesn't have all the books of the Bible that you and I have, but he had the work of Jeremiah. And as he reads Jeremiah, what we know as chapter 25, God had told Jeremiah that Israel was going to go into captivity for 70 years. And then after 70 years, Israel would be restored and would return to their homeland. It is now 67 years. Since Israel has been captive to Babylon, Daniel was taken captive 605. 605 to 538 is 67 years. Daniel knows in three years, Israel will be able to return to her homeland. So what does this tell us about Daniel? It tells us that though a prophet, though receiving direct revelation from God, which, in my opinion, does not happen today. Though it did in Daniel's day, and it did for Daniel, that was no substitute for the study of the Word of God. He could have just prayed and said, God, would you reveal to me when we will be restored? He doesn't do that. He opens up God's Word, 
and he studies it. It says he scrutinized it. He didn't just read it. He studied. He reflected. He sought to understand it. And when he did, what does Daniel do? He doesn't say, ah, I know what God's up to and become complacent about it. He doesn't respond by saying, I know what God's plan is and therefore I don't need to do anything about it. But rather, it moves him to pray that God would fulfill what he promised he said he would do. I think this is just remarkable because our tendency is to read God's word and leave it there and simply enjoy what we've come to understand. Sometimes our tendency is that when we do understand what God is up to, we become complacent, not merely in our lives, but in our service. And we conclude, it doesn't matter what I do, because God is going to pull this off as he said he would. But Daniel somehow gets it right. He understands what God is going to do, and he's moved to do something in consort with it, and that is to pray. And so the first half of the book of Daniel is his prayer in light of what he now knows God is going to do based on his study of the word of God. And so in verse 20, he said, while I was speaking, while I was praying, and look what the prophecy leads him to pray about. First of all, he said, I was confessing my sin. This too is remarkable. Because Daniel is one of two characters in Scripture about whom no sin is recorded. Certainly Yeshua is one in the Brit HaDashah, but in the Hebrew Scriptures it's Joseph and it's Daniel. And though Daniel is presented as one who is blameless and without fault, and indeed he is, he is a sinner like you and I. But there's no record of it. So it's very interesting to me that his first characteristic of his prayer is to confess his own sin. And if you look at the first part of Daniel chapter 9, you'll see all of the first person plural pronouns. We have done this. We have done this. We have done that. And in one sense, Daniel specifically didn't do any of those things. But yet he joins himself to his people because like his people, he knows he too is a sinner in need of God's grace. And so in chapter 9, we're told, in verse 20, he confessed his own sins, and then he confessed the sins of the people of Israel. He was making his request to the Lord, my God, for his holy hill. That's Mount Zion. That's the city of Jerusalem. That's the place where the temple once stood. He was praying that God would indeed restore his people back to the land and rebuild the temple and rebuild the city that has now been laid waste. And look at verse 21. While I was still in prayer, Gabriel, the man I had seen in the earlier vision, we know Gabriel is an angel, but angels always appear as men. They never appear as women. They never appear as children. They never appear like we oftentimes see them, you know, these Cupid kind of forms. And I've always said, when those artists, if they know the Lord, appear in heaven, you know they're going to be answering to those angels. They're just waiting, you know, to get their hands on those guys. But Gabriel's name means the might of God. God's power. God's strength. And he, while Daniel is still praying, he shows up. And 
Daniel tells us that he came to me in swift flight about the time of the evening sacrifice. So Gabriel, man, he was like told, get down there, tell Daniel what's going on. And Gabriel swiftly goes, no hesitation, got it, boom, and he gets there. But what's really fascinating is when he gets there. It says at the time of the evening sacrifice, temple's been destroyed for a, since 586. So now my math is so terrible. But 586, 576, 566, 550. I don't know. How many years is that? 30 years or something? Please help me. Those of you who are accountants here. You know, it's about 30 years. The temple has been destroyed. There has not been any evening sacrifice. But yet Daniel tells us the time that Gabriel came to him was at the time of the evening sacrifice, which is about three in the afternoon they would start. That tells us something about Daniel. Though he was in Babylon, his heart is still in Israel. And though he hasn't been giving the daily sacrifice, He knew that's when it ought to be offered, and that's when he prayed. His life was still regulated by the worship in the temple. And so he didn't say, oh, at about 3 o'clock. But at the time when the evening sacrifice would normally be offered, that's when Gabriel appeared. What a religious man he is. What an aware individual he is. What a devoted servant of God from beginning to end. Remember, this was a man taken into captivity when he was 17 years old or so. Here he is now about 80, and he's still thinking of his time of day in regards to what went on in the worship of God in the temple. This was a man whose life was a life that revolved around worship. God was first and foremost in his life when he was 17. And now when he's 80-something years old, there's never a moment when we are to take a break from serving God. We serve him from the beginning of our lives to the end of our lives. And the longer that is, the better for us. The sooner you come to know the Lord and devote yourself to his service, and the longer you are committed to serving him wherever you are planted and however he has gifted you, the better you will be, and the greater will be your reward. And so Daniel's life is just calculated by the worship of God, even with regard to timing things. So what time did he appear? Oh, when the evening offering is. And we're all saying, when was that? But Daniel knew, because his life was just focused on the worship of God and the regularity of of that worship and the regularity of the time when worship as such would occur. I just think these are such cool little things that we might miss. So in verse 22, Gabriel instructed him. He didn't just tell him something. It's like he taught him. And so here he is getting the firsthand scoop on what he saw. And he said, Daniel, I've now come to give you insight and understanding. As soon as you began to pray, an answer was given. Isn't that wonderful? Took me a little while to get here with it, but as soon as you prayed, the answer is there. You know, that's true for all of us. As soon as we pray, the answer is there. 
I love that line. I always attributed it to Bob Dylan, but then I found out it was Yeshua, you know, <laughs> where he says, he knows what you need even before you ask. I was like, that's a great line. How does he come up with all those lines? And then I realized, no, oh, that was Yeshua. <laughs> you know, well, that's a great line to put in your song. You know, if you're going to plagiarize, plagiarize the man. You know, that's the thing. In any case, he said, as soon as you began to pray, an answer was given. As soon as we pray, an answer is given. We just have to sort of relax about it coming to fruition. And so the angel comes to him and says, I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. Isn't that a wonderful thing to hear from an angel of God? You are highly esteemed. That's like what is said of Mary, right? Blessed of all women are you, the angel says to her. You are highly esteemed, for you will be used by God to bring about the birth of Messiah. With regard to Daniel, God's going to be using you to tell you the time when Messiah will appear. And as wonderful a man that Daniel was and Miriam was, who gave birth to Yeshua, you know, this is true for all of us because when God looks at us, he sees us through the person of his son. We are all highly esteemed in the eyes of God because of Messiah. So he not only saves, he not only reconciles, but think of this, he makes us highly esteemed in God's eyes. And therefore, we should look at each other as ones who are highly esteemed individuals. And that would give us pause, wouldn't it? You know? And, uh, you know, like, whatever you may think of the current president of the United States, if you're invited to go and, you know, have an audience with him, you behave very differently, you know? Because now, to get a personal invitation to, or anyone that you particularly respect, you know that, you know, what would you say if you had the opportunity? Well, you have all these things, but when you're right there, it's like humming, 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 you know, you don't know what to say. And so with each other, who are highly esteemed in the eyes of God, we want to be careful how we speak with one another. Therefore, consider the message, understand the vision. So here we go. Uh, let me try to take a few moments to sort of lay out what's here as best as I think I can. In verse 24, the angel Gabriel starts by saying, Seventy-sevens are decreed for your people in holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, to anoint the most holy. So let's take this one at a time. Notice, first of all, it says seventy-sevens. It doesn't tell us seventy-sevens of what. So if it was 77s of days, that would be 490 days. Am I right? <laughs> See, already I'm asking questions. If it was 77s of days, that would be 449 days. Good? You got 70 times 7 is uh, 490, but, you know. But 70 sevens of days, yikes, would be 490 days. Good? If it was weeks, it would be 490 weeks. So if you multiply that times seven, that tells you how many days. And I'm not doing that. 
Because we, most commentators understand this is 77s of years. So we have 490 years. Everybody good so far? I know I started off on a bad foot because it had to do with math. And it's very specific. I'm a generalist. So here we are, 490 years. So let's just hold on to that for a moment. Second thing that's important is not only the, no, the amount of time, but the uh, focus of the decree. Look at verse 24. The decree is for your people and your holy city. So this passage has to do with Israel, the Jewish people, and the city of Jerusalem. Everybody good so far in that? So the prophecy has to do with Israel and the city of Jerusalem. So the focus is not the Gentiles. Remember, up until this point, we had these different visions, right? We had Nebuchadnezzar's vision of the different Gentile nations. We had Daniel's vision of those weird animals in chapter 7, Gentile nations. We looked at chapter 8, the he-goat, the ram, Gentile nations, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. But when we get to chapter 9, Gentile nations aren't in view. The focus is Israel, your people, and the city of Jerusalem. Okay, everybody good? Third thing I want you to notice, not only is there 490 years, and not only does it focus on the Jewish people, but notice that the beginning of the 490 years starts with a decree to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. So the decree is not limited to merely the walls around Jerusalem or the rebuilding of the temple that is within Jerusalem, but it's the rebuilding of the city itself as a decree, an order, a permission by a higher authority to go about and do that. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar destroyed Jerusalem and the temple by 586. It's been laid in ruins. When the Jewish people first return under Cyrus... 536 years before the time of Messiah, just a few years later from this very point, three years from Daniel chapter 9, the Jewish people will return and to begin to rebuild the temple, which will be completed in 521. So in another 40 years or so, a little less than 40 years, the temple gets rebuilt. But this decree is not for the temple. This decree is for the city of Jerusalem. That decree is not issued until Artaxerxes I, under the time of Nehemiah, which occurs 445 years before the time of Messiah. So here are three things we want to sort of hold our hats on. There's 490 years. The, the focus is the Jewish people in Jerusalem, and it concerns a decree to rebuild the city. Okay, so those are three major issues we need to remember. The fourth thing that we want to look at is what's to take place. Daniel is told six things will take place after the decree to rebuild the city of Jerusalem, which is about 445 BCE, before the time of Messiah, before the common era. It has to do with starting when the city will be rebuilt and it focuses on the Jewish people. Six things will happen. Number one, he tells us there will be, number one, a finishing of transgression. Number two, an end to sin. And number three, an atonement for wickedness. 
Notice in those first three of those six things, everything has to do with iniquity, transgression, sin. The focus is on atonement. But remember what our focus is or the theme here is? It's the Jewish people. So what Daniel is telling us is that this prophecy has to do with the time when Israel as a nation will no longer be held liable for her transgressions. It will be a time when her sin will have come to an end. It will be a time when the atonement will be applied to the nation of Israel as a whole. Everybody with me? Prophecy is to Israel, not the nations. The rebuilding of the city of Jerusalem. And he says six things will happen for Israel. The first three all are restatements of the similar theme. Israel will have her sin atoned for and she will be forgiven of her sin, and there will no longer be Israel transgressing against the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We know from other prophecies that will take place when Messiah comes in his glory, when he returns to establish his kingdom. And all Israel shall be saved, Paul says, when the deliverer shall come from Zion and turn away all ungodliness from Jacob. That's what Daniel sees here. Says that very same thing Paul says in Romans 11, three different ways. End to sin, transgression, and atonement. So the prophecy is telling us there's going to come a time when Israel, who because of her sin has been in captivity for 70 years, will be restored unto God and will never sin and rebel against God again. That day will come, Daniel is being told. He's told something else. It will also be a time when everlasting righteousness will be brought in. That everlasting righteousness will come when the Messiah of Israel reigns on the throne in Jerusalem. So he's telling us, not only will Israel's sins be taken care of, but there will be a positive element. There will be a bringing in of righteousness. And one of my favorite passages, turn with me to it very quickly, Jeremiah chapter 23. I can't help but think of this passage in light of what Daniel is told. Because in Daniel chapter 23, Jeremiah says, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up to David a righteous branch. Remember what Daniel says, that this one who will come after the decree and the 490 years, he says, will bring in everlasting righteousness. How will this one bring in everlasting righteousness? Jeremiah tells us. He will be righteous himself. And because he is righteous, he can bring in everlasting righteousness. Look what he says. He is a king who will reign wisely. He will do justly again. And he will do right in the land. How does he do right in the land? Because he's righteous. Look at verse 6. In his days, Judah will be saved. Israel will live in safety. This is the name by which he will be called, this descendant of David, this king of Israel. What is the name we will call him? We might say his name will be I Am, and that wouldn't be wrong. We might say his name will be the Son of Man, and that wouldn't be wrong, although that's a title. We might say his name will be Yeshua, and that certainly is the name that he has born as the one who brings salvation. But look what Jeremiah tells us. His name will be Adonai Sidkenu, 
The Lord, sacred name of God. I said Adonai, but it's the unpronounceable name of God here. Notice in the English translation, all capital letters for Lord, right? That means it's the sacred name of God. It is Adonai or Yahweh, whatever word you want to use, but Adonai Tzidkenu, the Lord, our righteousness. How does the king of Israel become the sacred, have the sacred name of God attributed to him? By the way, this is the only place in the Bible where someone other than the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has the sacred name of God attributed to him. It's the only place. Other individuals may have a short form of the sacred name of God. For example, Yoel, short form of the sacred name of God, Yo, El, Jehovah is God, Yoel. Others have an abbreviated form of the sacred name of God, but no one has the sacred name of God applied to him than the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and this son of David here in Jeremiah 23, verse 5. This one will be the Lord, our righteousness. How does he become our righteousness? Because he brings in everlasting righteousness. How does he do that? Because he himself is righteous. So what have we seen? We've seen that when the time period comes to an end, Israel will be saved. Her sins will be dealt with. She will be forgiven and never rebel as a nation again. She will be one who will experience the coming of everlasting righteousness. Notice further what it says. And when this one comes, this one will seal up vision and prophecy. Notice that when he comes to reign, all prophecy and vision comes to an end, is complete, and is fulfilled. And therefore, it's sealed up. It is finished. It is no longer anticipated. It becomes history and is looked back upon as reality. When these events are done, prophecy is complete. And all that the prophets have said will be seen to have come to fruition. And that's why Yeshua will say, I've come not to destroy the law of the prophets, but to fulfill them. He fulfills many of them when he first came at the time of his birth. But when he comes again, he will fulfill what remains. And at that point, all prophecy, all vision will have been completed, will have been sealed up and made complete. And then lastly, he says, and then there will be an anointing of the most holy. There are two possibilities here. Either the most holy is a reference to the Messiah himself. There will be an anointing of the most holy as he now comes and is acknowledged as king and as an, is anointed as Israel's king of all kings and lord of all lords. That's one possibility. It's also possible that the anointing of the most holy will be the anointing of the holy temple that will be rebuilt by the Messiah himself, according to Zechariah chapter 6, where it says the Messiah, the branch of the Lord, will build the temple. Even he will build the temple. Twice, Zechariah says it. Not only will he build the temple, it says he will bear its glory. And thus, Daniel chapter 9 is telling us that at the time that the Messiah reigns, there will be an anointing of the Most Holy either the temple and the Holy of Holies that will be existing in the temple at that time, or the very Messiah himself. Now let me just conclude by looking at this final segment, where in verse 25 it says, No one understand this, 
from the issuing of the decree to restore and to rebuild Jerusalem. Not just the rebuilding of its walls, but the city itself. This must be the decree of Artaxerxes in 445, as recorded in Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 1. That is the starting point for these 490 years. But notice what Daniel is told. He says, from the decree until the Messiah, the anointed one, the, pr- the prince who comes, the ruler, the Messiah. He says there will be seven and 62 sevens. That is to say, there will be 69 of those 70 weeks. So the Messiah will appear. After 69 of the 70 weeks that he's just been told of. We were told 70 weeks of years would be 490 years. But he's telling us the Messiah will appear after 69 of those years. Or those sevens. Which is 483 years. Right? 483 plus 7 is 490. So 483 years from the decree to rebuild Jerusalem... 445 takes us to about 38 A.D. So you say, well, wait a minute. That's eight years, at least around eight years too long because Yeshua came and gave his life somewhere around 30. There's discrepancy whether it's 27, 30, or 33. Scholars have differences within that time frame, but we're a little too far. Why would that be? The reason that would be is because the Jewish calendar is different than the Gregorian calendar. Jewish calendar has 12 months. Every month has 30 days. Not like our calendar, Gregorian calendar. Very confusing calendar. We have some calendars that have 31 days. Some months have 31 days. Some have 30 days. Then we have one month that has 28, but every four years it has 29. And so if you're asked, so how many days are there in June? I have to say 30 days past September, April, June, 30 days. That's all that I remember it. But you see, the Jewish calendar is very simple. If you asked, how many months in the month of Ar? 30. How many in the month of Tishrei? 30. How many in the month of Aviv? 30. <laughs> you know, just name a month, it's 30. Because in the Jewish calendar, it's 12 months, 30 days. That's 360 days as opposed to 365 days. So now you have to set, you have to, subtract the additional five plus a quarter days over those seven years or eight years. When you do that, or those 483 years, when you do that, you save about eight years, which puts us to 30 AD, which is the time frame of Yeshua's ministry when he came to atone for the sins of Israel and the sins of the world. So what Daniel told us was, 483 Jewish calendar years from the moment of the decree in 445 expect the Messiah to be on the scene. There was no excuse for the Jewish people not to have known that this was the day. If they were like Daniel, who when he read chapter 25 of Jeremiah, you got 70 days, you'll be restored if they were like Daniel and set their hearts to pray and ask God, help us to understand this passage, if they were like Daniel had read Daniel's passage and said, if my calculations are somewhat in the neighborhood, Messiah should show up around this time. 
And if they devoted themselves to prayer over this passage, no doubt God would have answered those prayers and told them, lift up your eyes, for he now will appear. There were some who knew, the Magi from the east, they came looking for the king of the Jews, not the king of the Babylonians or the Magi's. They came looking for the Jewish king. How did they know? Well, they were Chaldeans. They were from the east. They were from the land of Babylon. They had the writings of Daniel. That's where Daniel's writing from. They had the writings of Jeremiah, no doubt, for Daniel had the writings of Jeremiah. They knew what Daniel had told them. And remember, Daniel was highly respected by the Babylonian astrologers and the Babylonian wise men and counselors. They probably cherished his book, respected his book, read his book, and digested and sought to uncover what he had to say. And they knew what Daniel had told them. They knew around this time Messiah must appear. So where do they go? To the Jewish teachers of the law. They go to Jerusalem. They go to the temple. They speak to the Levites. They spoke to Pharisees. They asked, where is he who's to be born king of the Jews? They didn't have Micah's prophecy. They knew the time. They knew the area, Israel. But they didn't know where in Israel. And isn't it interesting that the Jewish leaders that they spoke with knew exactly where he was to be born. But they never bothered to go themselves. And they had no sense of the when Messiah would be born. But these Chaldeans in the east who had the book of Daniel did know. And they acted on what they knew and God led them. Didn't just lead them, but he sent the Shekinah glory for them to follow to the one whose glory, the Shekinah glory, glorifies the Messiah of Israel. Think of this. If there's not one, if there isn't a lesson we should learn from this is how important the word of God is. It isn't dreams and visions and impressions that we may have in our hearts or minds. It's what the word of God teaches. It led Daniel to know that Messiah would come at this time. It led the Magi to know he's coming at this time. We got to get to Israel. And it led the Jewish leaders they spoke with to tell them where it was they should go. And they went right there, and they found him precisely as Daniel said he would show up. Is that not remarkable? There's much more to say about this passage. We just don't have the time. But I got to tell you, it is full of wonderful things. But let me just share one very final moment. Turn with me to the book of Matthew. And in Matthew chapter 1 and 2, we're told that in Matthew chapter 1, When Joseph learns that his betrothed Mary is pregnant, he seeks to put her away privately. And then we're told that an angel of the Lord, verse 20, appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Miriam home as your wife. He does that. When we get to chapter 2, of course, we read about the Magi and how two years later after his birth they show up. But notice this in chapter 2, verse 13, that when the 
magi appear and then tell Herod that they found the Messiah of Israel? An angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, verse 13. Says, get up, take the child and his mother, escape to Egypt. Then later, in verse 19, after Herod died, we're told an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph and said, get up, take the child and his mother and go back to the land of Israel. Now, if you turn to the Gospel of Luke, because it's only Matthew and Luke that give us the early accounts associated with the birth of Messiah. And in Luke's account, it opens up with Zechariah, the father of Yochanan, John the Baptist, the Mercer, the herald of the Messiah, of him serving in the temple and lighting the altar of incense. And in verse 11, it says, Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, stood on the right side of the altar, and said to him that his prayers were answered and that his wife Elizabeth would bear a child. But Zechariah wasn't convinced that the angel's telling him the truth. And so in verse 18, Zechariah asked the, asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? Now look at verse 19. The angel answered, I am Gabriel. That's probably not a good sign when the angel tells you its name. You know? I am Gabriel. Uh-oh. Forget the question. I withdraw the question. But it's too late. And he not only tells him, I'm Gabriel, I stand in the presence of God. I've been sent to speak to you. If that's not enough, know this. You will now be rendered mute and not able to speak and express your doubts and consternation until you see the birth, and then you'll be happier. But then look in verse 26. The sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee. And then we no longer read of Gabriel. Of course, Gabriel first appears in Daniel. Daniel 7 or so, where we saw earlier. But Gabriel is the angel that reveals to Daniel the time when the Messiah would arrive. He tells him, tells him your prayer was answered immediately. I was sent to come to you swiftly. I am now here to Zechariah. Here's Gabriel again showing up. Stands to reason it was Gabriel who is referred to in Matthew's account, as well as the remainder of Luke's account. For it's Gabriel that appears to Zechariah, it's Gabriel that appears to Mary. It's probably Gabriel who is tasked with this message and this moment. It appears that Gabriel has the great privilege of being the angel to announce the Messiah's coming. He announced it prophetically, and he announced it actually. Probably Gabriel, he said, I stand in the presence of God. This is my job, man, to tell you what's happening with the coming of the Messiah. What a great responsibility he had. What a great privilege, don't you think? The only other angel named in the Bible is Michael. And whenever you see Michael, he's standing up in power in defense of his people, Israel, the Jewish people. He's the one who disputes with the evil one over the body of Moses. He's the one in the book of Revelation who will stand up to defend Israel when Israel is attacked by the nations of the world in the work of the anti-false Messiah. It is Michael who is the defender of Israel. It is Gabriel who is the announcer of the coming 
Redeemer. The one who is called the might of God reveals to us indeed how mighty God is to save. And the one who is named who is like God, or who is like God is, if I'm not mistaken, Eitan can correct me, Michael, is that right? Who is like God is, or who is like God, is the one who reveals that he is like God in defense of his people. For Israel is the apple of God's eye. And the one who neither slumbers nor sleeps will always keep and defend and protect Israel. And Michael, whose name is one who is like God, is that protector of God's chosen people. But here we are 2,000 years later, as Bob said as we prayed before service. We're here for one reason and one reason alone. Messiah has come. He didn't just come. He came at the precise time Daniel said he would come. And he already laid the foundation for redemption and salvation and restoration that will come about fully when the 490 years is complete. Remember, we only looked at 483. That brings us to when the Messiah would come and be cut off for the sins of his people. As Daniel says, we didn't look at that verse particularly. But after 483 years, Messiah would come and be cut off and provide atonement. But after the 490th, he will come to reign and all Israel will be saved. We celebrate his coming, for he has come as scripture promised he would. I should say, he has come as God promised he would, and as scripture has recorded. And if he has so come, and that's why we are here, well, he promises to come again in the clouds of heaven with great power and great glory. As we study his word, we ought to rejoice over his former coming, his first coming, but to rejoice in anticipation of his second coming. And not just rejoice in that coming, but to be as diligent as Daniel was to serve him faithfully and to worship him always. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we rejoice in your goodness and in your kindness, and we are grateful for your marvelous, marvelous grace. This is a very complicated passage, and it took the angel Gabriel to explain to Daniel. Father, far be it from us that we know it inside and out, for we don't. But we know some things. And we know, Lord, your word is true. For even in the precise moment that you said Messiah would come to be cut off to provide atonement for sin, he has done just that. And I pray, Father, that all of us here this morning would be recipients of the grace that brings salvation that he has provided. May each and every individual here this morning be able to say, indeed, Lord, you are my Lord. You are my Savior. You are my King. You are my Messiah. You are my atoning sacrifice. And then, Father, we thank you for being faithful to your word and to your promises. Thank you for your Son who came into our world and provided us with life and life. We give you all honor, praise, and glory. We pray in Messiah Yeshua's name.